0: autism spectrum disorder has had some profound effects on our global culture over the past few years as a greater understanding of this neurological disorder is communicated by scientists physicians advocacy groups educational professionals and parents this information makes it into the public awareness the impact this understanding has on our society is helping to shape the future of how this disease is perceived you're listening to Reach MD. I'm Paul Rikuski, your host. And with me today is Richard Grinker, Ph.D., Professor and Chair of Anthropology, and Director of the Institute of Ethnographic Research at the George Washington University. Welcome, Dr. Grinker.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you for joining us. So for our listening audience, could you give us a little bit about your professional background?
1: Sure. Well, I'm an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, trained in the cross-cultural study of psychology, psychiatry, emotion, and so on. And, you know, a lot of people who are interested in autism, my research area, don't typically hear from an anthropologist. So it's a little bit unusual, but I became an anthropologist because I was interested in cross-cultural differences, and I began to focus on psychiatric issues because I wanted to somehow integrate a long family history of research and writing in psychiatry with the study of variation in the world. And so my Ph.D. was at Harvard in anthropology. My main advisor was a psychological anthropologist who worked in Kenya, and so most of my work is focused in sub-Saharan Africa.
0: So what drew you specifically to the study of autism?
1: Well, that for me came about like it has for a lot of researchers, and that's personal involvement. It's remarkable how many autism researchers today are in the field because they have a a, a nephew or a niece or a child or a cousin or someone with autism, somebody that they're close to. And for me, that was my daughter. Isabel is now 23, and she was diagnosed when she was a little over two years old. And at that time, given that I was a dad of a child with autism and an anthropologist, it was sort of natural that people would say, so, what do they do about autism in Congo? What are they? What's the prevalence of autism in Fiji? You know, what kind of jobs are available for adults with autism in Bolivia? And, of course, I didn't know the answers to any of these questions. I actually didn't work on autism at the time that my daughter was two years old, and I didn't know much about it. But I figured that other people had, and I started to do archival research, and I found that there was virtually nothing known about autism outside of North America and Western Europe. And when I say Western Europe, I really mean just Northern England, some Scandinavian countries. Just remarkable how little information we had. And even today, even today, we don't have good epidemiologic data from anywhere in South America, anywhere in the whole continent of Africa, anywhere in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's really an amazing thing that many of the things we think about autism are assumptions based on a relatively small sample of the world.
0: So would you say that's the biggest challenge in studying autism globally is the lack of data in many countries?
1: Well, I think that the lack of... everything's connected. You know, the lack of data means that people don't have ammunition to ask their societies to do more. They can't, without a prevalence rate, you can't say to your government, hey, we need more schools, or we need more educational programs, we need more services. So, you know, everything's connected. I think the biggest problem right now, globally, is the fact that there is no data to help people to advocate. And I also think that by focusing globally, we can often overlook the fact that we have cultural problems here at home. So in the United States, we see big disparities in age of diagnosis between, say, middle-class white Americans and minorities, urban and rural populations rich and poor population, where you find that the age of diagnosis is significantly later for people who have less advantages, but even so, even wealthier people who are minorities are having their kids diagnosed later. And so as much as we don't understand culture's relationship to autism diagnosis and treatment abroad, we also don't fully have a a grasp on that here at home.
0: So you touched on two things that I want to talk about, culture and and prevalence. So I want to start with culture. How do you define culture and its specific use in the study of autism?
1: Well, culture really means the meanings that we give to the world. So when we talk about gender, what we're talking about is how a system of culture creates meanings that we attach to the natural division between male and female. When we talk about a psychiatric issue, we're talking about how cultures give meaning to different kinds of human variation. And so when we look at something like the DSM and we see that there are X number of, quote-unquote, disorders, that's a cultural document because that is a document of how we are framing and giving meaning to human variation. So that's really what I mean by culture. And culture affects the way that we are going to understand a particular kind of difference, how we're going to value it or devalue it or denigrate or stigmatize it. And we could see that with something like homosexuality, which in the early 70s was still considered to be a mental illness. That's a cultural valuation of something, that it is a, an abnormality. Uh, we now don't see homosexuality treated as a mental illness anymore, and that is because of a cultural change. Not because people act any differently than they ever did before, but because we've given a kind of new meaning. So that's really what we mean by culture. Now, culture can definitely affect prevalence, because if culture defines the way that we come up with these ideas about what's a disorder or not, culture would then affect how we count it. If I consider tall to be X number of inches in my culture, I'm going to have a different prevalence of height, of tallness, and a different prevalence of shortness. And if I define autism differently, I'll get a different prevalence rate. So Connors, Leo Connors' definition of autism in the 1940s and 50s was so narrow that any prevalence study would make it seem very rare. Today, the way we think about autism is so enormously wide in its huge range that we're going to get a much higher prevalence.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD, I'm your host, Paul Rakusky, and I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Grinker. We're talking about the challenges of cultural study of autism spectrum disorder. So to follow up about the prevalence rates, from the CDC, we've seen a doubling in less than a decade's time frame here in the United States. Do you see this as a disorder occurring more often globally or more a recategorization over this period?
1: Well, it's a difficult question that you're asking because there are so many different elements that go into determining a prevalence estimate. First of all, the prevalence rates are all estimates, so they, they have to be taken somewhat with a grain of salt. Secondly, prevalence rates are so tied to the method. Somebody once asked me what the prevalence of autism was. What, I, did, I, what did I really think it was? Like, if there was true prevalence, and I answered, well, what prevalence rate would you like? Because I could give you a prevalence rate of 0.8% or 1% or 1.5 or 2 or 2.5% and justify it, depending on which study I was looking at, which method I was using, which kind of definition I was using. Thirdly, the Centers for Disease Control does a great job at what it does. And what it does is it uses records. They're not actually examining children, they're looking at records. So they can only count what they have a record for, and I for a long time have doubted that they could capture in records every case in the United States. Even my own daughter in the fourth and third and second grades would have been difficult to find because she didn't have a classification in the educational system with autism because there was no autism program in our homeschool and we wanted to keep her in our homeschool. So with that being said, if we see the rate going up in the CDC estimates. We're not necessarily seeing a true increase in the prevalence of autism. What we are seeing is a change in the kinds of records and kinds of evidence that have become available to them. So I went to South Korea and I did a big study over six years, and we came up with a prevalence rate of 2.64% much higher than anything the CDC has come up with, at least in its averages, although New Jersey is well over two in the CDC estimate. So if I see the CDC's rates go up tomorrow, you know, if we can just hypothesize tomorrow from one point, you know, I I see it go up to 1.8 or something high like that relative to previous statistics. I don't necessarily see that as an increase in cases. I might see that as we're getting closer to a more accurate rate of 25 or 2.6% like we saw in South Korea. Does that make sense? I mean, if you go from 1 to 1.5 and you think that the rate is really 2, 1 to 1.5 is not an increase. It's just improvement in capturing more cases.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And also the prevalence rate studies that the CDC does is based off of data that's already in the records where your South Korea study was a total population autism prevalence study.
1: And I neglected to mention that when I was talking about it, which is that that what we did was we looked at every child in a city, and we didn't rely on records because, first of all, records are limiting in the first place, but secondly, records are much less useful in South Korea. But we found by looking at every child a rate that is much higher. And so we don't believe that Koreans have more autism than Americans. We don't believe that. We believe that our method, given the current definitions of autism, if applied in a total population study, will yield over 2%. And though I'm not a part of this American study that the CDC has been involved with recently in South Carolina, my understanding is that they're, they're trying to use our method and i have no access to their data but i would guess that if they're using our method they'll come up with a much higher rate because you'll see everything and one of the reasons that we see differences between states in the united states where, where we have say high prevalence in new jersey relative to alabama almost four to five times the rate in new jersey to alabama isn't necessarily because alabama has little autism and new jersey has a lot but that New Jersey has a lot more data to report and a lot more services to offer, which then provide the CDC with the the data than Alabama does.
0: So since we're seeing a greater public awareness of autism spectrum disorder, what do you think some of the impacts on our society are with these prevalence rates the way they are today and, and seeing the increases over time?
1: Well, I think the more that we understand any kind of human difference, the better we get at understanding it more fully. That means that we understand not just people's challenges, but their strengths. And I think that we're really seeing in popular culture and in everyday life a kind of reevaluation of some of the core features of autism, the restricted interests, and the kind of social awkwardness and quirkiness and the the systematizing skills of people with autism in doing work in computers and engineering. And so at the sort of, you know, less complicated levels of autism, the people who really do have the ability to go into higher education, we have a new appreciation for it. And so we're not stigmatizing people as nerds anymore. We're We're seeing, you know, this is kind of the revenge of the nerds. You know, we're saying, hey, there are actually properties that we used to see as disabling, but we now see as positive. And that is culture refiguring these disabling properties into features that we actually value. So when people talk about Bill Gates being on the autism spectrum, they're not saying this is somebody with a psychiatric disorder who should be in an institution, which is how it would have been interpreted 40 years ago. What people are saying is, you know, there are certain abilities that certain people have, and we need to value human difference. So I think society is changing. And when we see people, like in my classes, I'll have a, I have autistic people in my classes, and somebody says in class that they have autism, you have to just step back and say, wow, isn't it amazing that we're at a place now in our society where an 18-year-old man or woman feels comfortable saying to their peers that they have autism? That's huge. And that promises a much better world for my daughter, so that when she tells people she has autism, people don't say, what's that? I don't understand it.
0: Well, Dr. Grinker, thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: My thanks again to my guest, Dr. Richard Grinker, professor and chair of anthropology and director of the Institute of Ethnographic Research at the George Washington University. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.